Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How are you now? Broadcasting from the VFS studios at Nelson's Point in Sydney. You are listening to the all-new BIP Show, Season 5, Episode 6. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all the financial information in this podcast is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Don't make me tell you twice. In fact, I will tell you twice. All of the, everything discussed in this episode and in all podcasts that I do are general advice in nature. That's it. Uh, now, speaking of which, my name is James Whelan. I'm an investment manager at VFS Group. Uh, I believe Paul Colgan is still stuck in Davos. Uh, I hope he's back soon. This episode is being recorded in Sydney, Australia. It is the 11th of August, 2022 AD. The time is 11.08 Australian Eastern Standard Time. And today's guest, let's get straight into it, is Misha Saul, an investment manager like myself, but let's assume slightly better at valuing things than I am, uh, previously with some cool names like MacBank, Rothschilds and Allegro Funds. He's currently resting his head at Potentia Capital, which is an amazing private equity firm with a really strong tech emphasis, uh, hence the discussion today. He's amazing on Twitter. He's got some some beautiful views that, uh, that align with mine as well, but also some controversial stuff that's really good to sort of uh, to tap onto as well. We'll get onto that at the end. Misha, how are you now? I'm excellent, James. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I absolutely love, love your work. <laughs> cheers, cheers. Um, now, everyone gets the same question, um, regardless of what they do. What do you do and how do you make money? Awesome. So I'm at Potential Capital, as you said. So that's a private equity firm. Um, what we do, we're basically Australia's only exclusively technology and software-focused private equity firm. So we um, buy and invest in mainly software businesses, um, improve them, and ultimately sell them to make a return for our investors. No, okay, that's a pretty good way about it. Now, let's let's get straight into the the idea with tech and investing and private equity as well. What separates, what makes, assuming that you are a good private equity um, investor, mm-hmm. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that assumption, what makes, what separates the good, the wheat from the chaff in the private equity space? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to kick it off and say, you know, I, I've been at Potential now for, uh, I, I joined earlier this year, so I don't want to pretend to be, um, you know, the, uh, the absolute expert in, in this in this space this is a specialist um, sphere focused on software. I did spend five years in in private equity before this, so I definitely have have views on 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 on, on private equity. Um, I think um, look, there are a lot of a lot of good private equity investors um, in um, you know, in Australia and, and around the world. Um, you know, US is the most mature pro- private equity market. I think I'm going to ask, answer your question initially obliquely. I think you know one trend that's been happening in private equity is increased specialization over time. And again, you can see that mainly in, in larger markets like the US and, and Europe, where 
Um, whereas Australia historically has had a very generalist private equity field, meaning basically private equity funds invest in you know, everything from chicken shops to drilling businesses to um, manufacturers. Um, in the US, that exists as well, but, but certainly there's been a, a huge growth in funds exclusively focused on healthcare companies or software firms or, or other forms of specialization. So um, kind of uh, curiously, I started my private equity life at, at Allegro, which, which is a, a turnaround and distress-focused uh, uh, fund. So that's also a specialist fund, and now I'm at a, a different kind of um, specialist fund. And I think, um, you know, what defines a, a really good private equity investor probably varies depending on, on your focus. Um, to be honest, I suspect what really makes a good private equity investor is the same thing that makes um, any investor a, a good investor. So, you know, often it's, it's, it's things like um, seeing something that uh, uh, others don't, you know. For example, um, you know, it, you know I, had a, I had a very senior um, private equity person tell me uh, recently that they've never bought something without, um, you know, feeling very uncomfortable the moment they bought it because effectively they paid the highest price anyone in the world is willing to pay for that asset at that time. And so, you know, now you're holding the baby and you've got to make sure you're right. So, um, so that, you know, I, I think having that conviction um, and, and seeing the insight that um, others don't probably, um, oh, you know, over a long term, yeah, it's probably one of the defining features of any any good investor. Yeah, okay. That's and, and, and I'll tell you what, the best investments, they do say it, the best investments that I've made are the ones that make you feel very uncomfortable at the beginning. Um, that uh, they're, they're often the ones, it's the ones where you, you have a thousand people all telling you that you're absolutely wrong. Um, the annoying thing is that sometimes you do believe them. So, and, and the annoying thing is that every now and then they are correct as well, which then sort of adds to the, adds to the difficulty of it. Do you have... Yeah. With the decision-making processes that you go through, uh, and this is a little bit off the cuff, I know sort of uh, going with this one, but I'm really interested in the way that, that decisions get made at, at different places. And I've, I've worked at a few places myself as well. The way of coming of formulating the decision is always a lot different. With some places, some places it's an actually set, and especially talking to some fund managers that I've had in the past, the way that they come up with a decision, like say Alan Gray, where they'll they'll spend months cooking on something and then eventually go ahead with it. And then you've got other places that are a morning, we've done the, we've done the research, we, we, we took it for a walk around the block and then we've come in. Uh, I, I don't make a decision without running it at least two kilometres. I'll, I'll have it, I've got a little process that I do when I'm doing stuff. Do, do you guys, is there, is there like how structured is the decision-making process with you guys? Yeah, I think it's a really um, interesting question. Uh, I think about this a lot because, um, you know, I think if you look at a private equity firm, any private equity firm really, maybe excluding the, the real mega funds that are kind of global behemoths. Yeah, and K- K- KKRs stuff. and things like that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But even on a local level, they tend to be just small groups of people. I think people really underestimate, uh, you know, how small, uh, it, you know, it's really just a small group of people at these firms, um, you know, managing pretty meaningful amounts of money. And so I, it really is person-specific and person-dependent. And so, um, you know, every private equity firm will tell you 
they have a, a rigorous process, which they generally do, frankly, um, and their process is special and they've got you know, their sourcing and their analysis and exit process down pat and it's all very process-driven. And so that's what private equity firms will tell you. And in large part, it's true. But I think the more interesting uh, frame and, and, and lens you can kind of place on it is, um, you know, really, um, you know, who are these decision makers? And and LP, so investment private equity funds, are really cognizant of this. They're really back to people at these funds, at least as much as kind of processes and, and institutions. So they're very cognizant of the importance of the people. But I think um, you know, it ultimately really depends on how um, private equity fund partners and, and founders mainly, but the broader team as well, want to want to do things and how they think about process and what they think um, is important. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I think of this in kind of like, like, Private investing decisions are really non-deterministic, and I think there are as many styles as there are people because it all comes down um, to, to, to judgment. So that's a, that's my really long, um, you know, winded way of, of saying I think ultimately it really comes down to, to the people and how they go about doing things. There are some firms that are, you know, where decision-making and judgment is hyper-centralised and really there's a firm centered around one person's judgments and preferences and ideas, and the rest is just kind of data collecting or justifying decision making. Yeah. And then there are firms where you know, it, it is somewhat more decentralized, um, and there's a and there's a you know, there's more of a process to kind of collate and manage judgment um, between various people. So. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know if that answers your question. But I think you can kind of spend a long, long time on that. Like Danny Kahneman had a really, he's had a couple of great podcasts where he's mentioned that he has um, advised firms, you know, investment firms specifically around how to optimize their process. You know, things like sending questions in ahead of investment meeting. Um, you know, most senior people speaking last, and that's in order to kind of get a real process going rather than having one person dominate a discussion to, to avoid groupthink. And I think it's always really interesting to think about, um, you know, to the extent investment firms' um, processes mirror that or are actually really a, a cover for one or two people making their decisions. I think that's always a really interesting question. Yeah, that 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 is to, and I mean, well, specifically, we won't go into the uh, into the details on that one, but I th- I'm pretty sure that you covered most of what it was that I was looking for on that one. Now, let's get right into the actual valuations and 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 really start to look up into the weeds here. The age of cheap money is behind us. Rates are up to I don't even know where they're up to, but we can see that the three percent is about the number that uh, that it's looking at, as opposed to zero. Uh, Europe has, I believe, now turned to zero from being negative on their on their official overnight rate, which is great. How How is the the absence? Now, we saw that the, obviously that, that we, we've seen that cheap money fueled valuations have, have led to a little bit of craziness in the markets. And that's obviously we've had about eight months of that really going backwards now. How is that? I mean, I'm an equities guy. I'm a listed guy for the most part. I do invest in some off-market stuff. But private equity is a little bit foreign to me, as the listeners are probably hearing in my voice now. How, how has the, the, the change in valuations or the fact that money now costs something changed your world 
Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think the the real um, uh, pointy end of all that valuation stuff is probably you know, US tech, where you had, you know, often excellent firms and sometimes not so excellent firms trading on, you know, 50, 100 times you know, revenue multiples mm, and kind of aggressively loss making. And it's, it's very hard to get your head around at what point um, – that, that actually makes sense. Um, and so, and, and that, and most firms, you know, in terms of just multiple compression have come down the most uh, out of any um, since that time. So, so, you know, if I, if I'm focused on, you know, software, uh, which, which I am in kind of private equity land, even, even though, um, you know, we're often uh, looking at private companies, private um, companies and founders and, and vendors, do peg their valuations often to, to lizard companies, so it, it does matter. Um, and you know the, the the valuations that private equity firms pay for private companies do um, also kind of follow a, a cycle and, and follow the macroeconomic cycle. So you know it's definitely had a big change, I'd say. Um, so obviously, lizard markets have have um, you know, meaningfully corrected for the last six to twelve months. Um, I'd say, um, you know, we haven't quite seen private markets adjust fully yet to that. Um, so there's still a disconnect where public markets are trading versus where um, private um, vendor expectations um, are. And so, um, so, you know, I think ultimately that kind of um, correct. I think you're seeing the pain most right now um, in kind of not so much private equity land, but more in, in VC land, um, where you know, things uh, are almost, you know, tend to be more loss making and kind of you know it's, uh, more subscale. Yeah. And so you really don't want to be touching capital markets today if you can avoid it, unless you're doing exceptionally, because you will be raising. You know, if you raised last year, you raised at this great valuation, and now that valuation may have gone down, you know, 50, 80 percent. Um, and so, you know, if you if your investors six, 12 months ago, they may have invested via a liquidity preference instrument or, or some other preferred instrument. And so, you know, if they kind of um, took 20, 30 percent of the of the equity, they may have 100 percent of the equity value today. And so, you know, if you're a founder um, or you know, if you're an employee of those companies, you don't really want to touch capital markets because then you'll crystallize that value loss. And so That's your incentives are really to uh, to reduce cash burn and wait this period out, basically. Yeah. And so that's why you see all these um, cost-cutting and, and, and redundancies across the market because they're trying to extend their runway so they can raise money in more favorable capital market conditions. Let's, and, and let's let's just make sure that we specify that one. And because I was I was literally just reading Forbes uh, Forbes magazine just put something out about it. I think it was yesterday talking about the predictions for because because a private equity firm it's obviously it's not listed and this is sort of just we're going to dumb it right down. So I do apologize to anyone who's who's sure. already familiar with this but and, and yourself too mission but I've been asked to, I've been asked to make things a little bit more simple for people um, sometimes just to make sure that we've got a broad church of listeners which is great. Uh, learning is is one hundred percent what we're all about here. So the uh, with a regular equities market, it's it's the market is the market. You know the price of things. People's portfolios can be marked to the, to the exact day, the last time that something traded, or the last time there was a bid spread, and just take the take the midpoint if you want to be that guy. With the private equity market, because it's uh, 
not mark it's you can basically just mark it to whatever valuation whatever last point in the, whatever last time it was raised or whatever last time it was bought you can have a valuation based on that and you don't get to re redo that valuation until you have to which is sort of what you were saying just then right so and that would be another raise or uh, uh, or, or another purchase of a part of that company or something that, that that goes into it until there's another event you don't get to draw another line in the sand for where valuations are and valuations are already really high or, or they were last yeah. month, you know, based on last year. What, and the Forbes magazine sort of went into that, that we're now coming into the period where that sort of stuff is actually going to happen. So do you think that it's, I mean, you, you did say that you have cost cutting to be able to avoid having to do raises and therefore having a, a fresh valuation at a lower mark. What? How long can that really go for, though, before you eventually have to go back to the market? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, so I admit, so everything's saying um, right, and feel free just to cut in and happy to kind of um, define things or, or whatever if, that, if that's helpful. I guess there, there are probably a few things I'd say. So, uh, just to be really explicit, I'm kind of talking from as an outsider observing into probably more um, VC land and, and a kind of growth stage VC land rather than private equity land. So, private equity companies, to your point, you know. Like they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not out there um, needing third-party capital, uh, uh, you know, unless, um, you know, they're, they've got their private equity sponsor who can um, presumably continue to to support them and and the like. It's really more um, in VC land, um, you know, not talking about uh, you know private equity portfolio companies, but in VC land, if you're if you're effectively a startup and you, you've raised that. Um, even if you're an advanced startup and you raised last year a billion dollars, um, and you know if you're aggressively loss making because you're investing heavily into growth, which was the mantra last year, and so suddenly um, you know you you expected you'd be raising in twelve to eighteen months, twelve months ago, um, and so now you found yourself in the capital markets, which are not supported, and valuations have declined seventy percent. You know, you'd be doing everything you can to cut costs and extend your runway before needing to raise again. And the question is, your question is, in that circumstance, how long can that go for? I, you know, I think that's a really, it's a great question. I think some companies um, are structurally, uh, you know, more attractive or more profitable. And so either they can cut to being break even and they can effectively do that um, indefinitely or for a while and, and, and kind of you know, take a lot of growth, survive by another day and, and um, yeah, until capital markets improve. Um, and some companies are structurally unprofitable for a long time. You know, at the extreme end, they may um, be negative gross margin. And so, you know, effectively negative unit economics um, kind of today, hoping, you know, they've got a path for a few years to get to positive gross contribution and positive gross margin. That's a really tough spot to be in, you know, you're you know, in, in this market because you're structurally losing money and you're really dependent on third-party investors kind of backing you with truckloads of cash, which is possible. It's just very tough in this market. Yeah, and I, I don't see it as getting any easier, although I do think that potentially that people are starting to absorb the reality that they're, that they're placed on, that there is actually a cost of, that there is actually sort of a hurdle that you've got that's a little bit higher based on the cost of money that they have. And whilst people were hesitant to invest 
and trust me, doing some raises that we were doing, people were just like, no, we're shutting up shop until we know exactly what's going to be ahead. And now it's the, the wallets are starting to open up a little bit. Now the people are sort of starting to realise, okay, money now, it's, the, the, the rates are up. This is maybe about as high as they're going to go. They could go a little bit more, but we've, we're through. We sort of know what we're looking at now and, and people have a better idea of where they're going to go for the rest of 2022 and 2023. Yeah. Have, you, have you sort of found that as well? Um, yeah. Why don't I make two observations? Um, one related to, uh, um, you know, more VC more land. And, and, again, I, I kind of go, keep going back to VC land. I, I'm obviously not a, not a venture capitalist, but I speak to VCs a lot. I've been investing in startups for, for over a decade. And now I'll touch on um, what I've been seeing credit markets, which are more relevant to private equity investing. And, and these two points I found quite counterintuitive in the, in the current moment. Go on. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, we've been talking about multiple compression and valuation issues, but I wouldn't really expect seed investing to decline at the moment. Um, I guess institutionally VCs might just be a lot more gun shy because they're probably investing into the peak last year and, and kind of, you know, got their fingers a little bit burnt. And so maybe institutionally they're a bit more shy. But what I've been hearing is that there's just a lot more, a lot fewer uh, leads and opportunities, which means a lot, lot fewer founders having a go. And I find that really interesting because it's not obvious why kind of a decline in valuations on the share market or rising interest rates should stop people just over like a six-month period starting businesses and, and seeing opportunities. And I don't actually know what the answer to that is. Maybe people feel um, less secure leaving their jobs because the broader environment is less exuberant. Mm. Um, or uh, or actually, I don't actually know what the, the, the reason is, but I find it really interesting that there, there are fewer leads. At, from first principles as a VC, especially a seed investor, I also don't really understand why you would be investing less today than you were 12 months ago. Like nothing's really changed. Like these like, you know, the time horizons on which you're investing are like, you know, five, 10 years plus. And so, you know, the conditions today versus conditions six months ago shouldn't really change. And yet there is a massive change in the markets. Now, the the second um, thing which I found really counterintuitive, when you're speaking to lenders today, across the stack from kind of, bank lenders to credit funds, so higher risk, um, you know, larger funds, they're feeling way more gun-shy today than they were 6 to 12 months ago. Um, And, again, that's really counterintuitive because valuations have massively compressed and, you know, a lot of the pain has already been um, eaten. And so you're way better off in, you know, uh, lending or, or investing in debt today than you were six to 12 months ago were, you know, at, at significantly higher valuations, especially when you're partnering with, say, a private equity partner into a, into a deal and you've got, you know, 60 70% equity cushion ahead of you. I actually think there's a massive opportunity today for credit funds to get, you know, really way more attractive um, you know, risk-weighted returns than they would have 12 months ago. But what we're seeing is a lot of funds um, on the debt side are being very cautious. So oh, that might be interesting to, to you, you know, in response to your question because yeah. there's two areas that seem very counterintuitive to me. That is interesting. And we'll, we'll, I'm going to pick that apart afterwards and I might write a little piece on it to, to, to back up with this one. But that's fascinating stuff that's there. Um, now let's get to the good stuff. I think we've talked about talked about shop a little bit too much mate 
Can we talk briefly about Kathy Wood? I know that you're, you're, you're in the tech space and Kathy Wood, um, allegedly the greatest tech investor of our generation um, to other people. She's, she's a bit of a loose unit. Um, what's, your, what's your take on her with her valuation and the way that they, that, that, that they have behaved themselves over the last couple of years? And this is ARK, well, investment, ARK investment as well for anyone who doesn't know who Kathy Wood is. Sure, sure. So, so I'm um, again. I'm really in like private equity land, kind of focused, and um, and less in in big listed um, you know, tech tech land. So, I obviously know who, who Kathy Wood is. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're, they're putting valuations on things. I mean, it's it's, it's and, yeah, they're, yeah. and they're projections on stuff. If you went in and had some of the projections that you had to go to your share or your investors like that, I mean, would you yeah. be able to get away with some of that stuff? Oh, look. So much of this is obviously rubbish. I'm always <laughs> a bit cautious, though, because, um, you know, I, I, you know, if you had, um, if you had invested in Tesla's IPO, you know, it would have been equally laughable. And, and, and um, you know, there's still a ton of bullshit around you know, t- t- Tesla and, and Elon Musk today. But actually, there's also enough um, legitimate, uh, you know, world-changing stuff going on under the hood that, um, you know, I always feel a little bit um, uh, gun-shy in, in kind of casting, casting stones because, um, you know, <laughs> in enough times these people kind of get it right that I, I actually would rather, um, you know, I always think a more interesting question to ask in these questions, in these situations, not how is this person wrong? Because I think it's really easy to kind of pick any any style or strategy apart and, and sometimes it's self-evidently ludicrous. Um, I, I think a more interesting question is to kind of wonder how this person could be right. And, 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 and that doesn't mean I'm going to go and invest in Kathy Wood's fund tomorrow. Um, and a lot of it might be, you know, it is kind of self-serving um, you know, stuff, frankly. But you know, I'm not super close to it. But I actually, um, you know, I, I don't have, uh, you know, super, super strong views. I reckon you should, be, you should talk to, like, uh, you know, John Hempton or, uh, or other kind of, you know, wild short sellers out there. <laughs> have, uh, strong, strong reviews on that. Yeah, we got, we got, we got John lined up for the show at some stage. I'm sure he'll, uh, he will. Uh, now, um, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, anyone, anyone who follows Misha on Twitter knows that he's got this amazing collection of books that he's done reviews on. He's gone through one of the most fascinating things that I, I saw you mention was about um, what was it? World War Two U.S. General Patton had to go and buy. To buy materials for for the t- for tanks, wasn't it, or something like that? But you do you do this amazing analysis on these books, which is absolutely phenomenal. Anyone anyone who gets a chance to have a read of what he does is fantastic. I'm interested in what you're reading at the moment. Um, I don't think that we do enough of this sort of conversation on the podcast since it's been just me. So uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to bring that back and actually now talk about some more some things a little bit more outside of just a regular shop talk. So what have you got on your desk at the moment, mate? So I've been going through. So first of all, that's excessively kind. Like, I, like that. You know, <laughs> that's your, your, your your reference is from um, a, a book called Freedom's Forge, which is like, a really popular popular book around um, you know, U.S. armaments and, and, and the kind of miracle of the U.S. war economy during World War Two. Which is, and frankly, I can't just 
I had it on my, and I bought it some time ago. I mean, as you, you kind of buy these books and lie around and, and you don't ever get to them. And I kind of picked it up some time ago and, and every single page is just kind of mind blowing. And so I did this kind of, you know, Twitter thread on it and there's no real analysis to it. I was literally just extracting these, these mind blowing facts from yeah, this book. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'll make my mental comment is I, I do kind of tend to read a lot, but it's really a bit of a cheat because um, I basically just mainly audiobook. Like I reckon 80% of my reading is audiobook, you know, while while you're cycling or you're commuting or ah. um, doing dishes or whatever. So I was wondering how you found, found all the time. That's incredible. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I would not have the time otherwise <laughs> at all. Honestly. <laughs> so, so, but, but you know, like I, I try to cycle into work. So if, I, if I'm cycling you know, each way is 30 to 40 minutes, you know, there and back, you get like an hour and a half. Of, of reading a day. And so so that's like a total cheat mode where, you know, I'm just kind of fitting in my exercise and my reading into my daily um, commute. So there's actually no kind of incremental time required on, on top of that. So that's my that's my really non-sexy secret to it. Um, then, you know, in terms of what I'm reading, I've gone through a bit of a World War II binge kind yeah. of by accident. I read um, I read this excellent biography of Hitler by Ian Kershaw. Um, I read this very provocative and super interesting book um, by, um, I think it's Sean McMeekin. Um, I apologize if I've got that wrong, uh, called Stalin's War, which basically posits that Stalin was the, the real kind of mastermind and, um, and beneficiary out of the war, he kind of played his cards uh, really well. And so, you know, you can, take, you can kind of um, take issue with some parts of the thesis, but overall, like, super illuminating. And then I've just um, read uh, Adam Tooze's The Wages of Destruction, which really kind of um, dives into the German war economy and, and kind of fuses that with Nazi ideology in terms of how that kind of led to the war and led to the outcome. And so, you know, I've been reading about World War II a fair bit of the last few years, but I kind of got through this binge. Um, and so, you know, that's why I'm just kind of always randomly sprouting, uh, spouting, um, you know, World War II kind of thoughts and, and facts. Um, it's really just a function of, 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 of reading these. And so I have been writing a fair bit of um, around World War II. I can kind of harp on endlessly about it. So I don't know for you or your listeners, but if you, if you, if they are interested, they can check out um, my sub stack where I do dive into a bunch of um, you know, ideas that synthesize parts of all these books. Yeah, and that's called the, the Kvetch. Uh, and, and yeah, you know it's what? called Kvetch. I'll yeah. tell you what that is. So, um, so I'm, 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 I'm Jewish, and, um, and Kvetch is, uh, is a Yiddish word for, um, you know, ha- having a winch, basically. And so um, I definitely don't want to take, uh, you know, the whole point of, you know, the, these occasional um, newsletters that I send out, on, you know, on the, on the, on the Kvetch substack is really just to have a, have a sook about things or kind of me just, um, you know, tossing around some ideas. And, um, and you know, I've been grateful to have, um, you know, people like, like yourself um, out there kind of to, to tic-tac, you know, with over ideas and who provide feedback. But that's all it is. Yeah. That's uh, okay. So people can go to your website. I think it's just Google Bishop Saul and, and they can find out where you are. And Absolutely. Follow the nose from there. Uh, look, if there's nothing else to talk about, I'm just going to wrap it up right there. It's been a fascinating conversation, Misha. Hey, James, really appreciate you having me on. No problem at all. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes, The Bip Show, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show and Facebook too, for some reason, not really sure why. 
Uh, I've got a website, Wheeland Capital, which is where I just keep all the VIP show stuff. It's just nice to have a landing page. As Mishak will attest, you've got to have a landing page. If you don't, you should probably get one. Otherwise, where are you going to keep all your stuff? What, in a drawer? Come on. Get on with it. Um, now, uh, I'm at James Wheeland 42 Misha Saul is on, I suppose it's just Misha Saul. I think you're actually on Twitter. Um, that was there. Uh, thanks very much, Misha, for joining us. Uh, everyone, this show is produced by, I don't know, uh, Johnny Walker. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.